Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the former White House Director of Economic Policy under George W. Bush, the Managing Director of the legendary Tiger Hedge Fund, former president of the G7 Group, and a best-selling author. He holds advanced degrees in economics and law from Cambridge and Harvard, and is a frequent guest on ABC News, PBS, CNBC, CBS, and many more. It is my great honor to welcome to the show, Todd Bookholtz. Thank you so much for joining us, Todd. Good to be with you, Adi. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your personal economic philosophy. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll tell you, when I was at the White House, I was asked to give the inaugural lecture in the White House library. I mean, the White House had been around for you know almost 200 years, but I guess they hadn't had a lecture series. So they asked me whether I would kick it off. And I gave a talk entitled Honesty, Modesty, and Clarity in Economics. And I feel those are three virtues that you don't find a lot of, especially in political economy. So uh, I have made it my mission over the years through books, articles, lectures, and in my professional investment work to try to be clear, to try to be honest, and to admit there's a lot of stuff that we don't know and a lot of surprises. And, um, you know, in my career, and I've been lucky enough to be at some pretty august institutions, whether it's Harvard or Cambridge or Tiger Management or uh, elsewhere. Um, and you always think, I'm going to come across that Mozart. I'm going to beat somebody who is just such an utter genius that the rest of us will, will be befuddled by their wisdom. And it turns out, you know, there really aren't any Mozart, certainly not in economics or politics or finance. At best, we're just a bunch of, if you ever saw the movie Amadeus, uh, we're a bunch of Salieri's trying to pluck out a decent tune. And if we're lucky and we're good, uh, maybe people will hum along. So that's my philosophy, honesty, modesty, and clarity. And I'm delighted to try to bring that to this discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's really, um, I think, words words to live by. So um, it's been about five years since your book, The Price of Prosperity, was released, where you examine the causes that propel rich and powerful nations towards gradual failure and decline, such as the loss of community, a contracting job market, immigration fears, rising globalization, extreme political polarization, and so on. So you talk both in the book and in a subsequent subsequent lecture you gave for the Young America's Foundation about how you saw the United States as more vulnerable to decline than it had been in the past. Now, five years and two administrations after um, it was written, I wanted to revisit the premise of the book and ask whether we are better or worse off with regard to many of the issues that you mentioned than we were in 2016. Well, I, I am by nature a fairly optimistic guy. I'm not one of those what we call on Wall Street perma bears who's always predicting a disaster. And then every X years when a disaster comes, they say, see, I was right all along. Uh, that's not my nature. I, I tend to be more upbeat about things. And I wish I could answer your question, Adi, by saying, well, in fact, things keep or things have turned around and things have gotten better. But when I look at the key factors I, I identified in the price of prosperity, it's really hard to find factors that are looking better than before. And just to get back at the premise of the book, it's sort of commonplace for people to think about failed nations and think that those are poor 
nations. And we could talk about Sudan and we can talk about what's going on in Venezuela and other places that are just desperate in poverty and uh, internal war. But rich nations also fall apart. The Ottoman Empire was once very rich. The Habsburg Empire was one of the richest empires in world history, stretching across Middle Europe and Austria and Hungary and parts of Germany. Um, they controlled much of the Western world, and yet they're gone. There are no Habsburgs left, and people wouldn't have been able to imagine that. So what are the factors that imperil the U.S.? First of all, it is falling birth rates. We are a shrinking population. Now, we do have immigration that helps offset that to some extent. Um, we have a rising debt load. At this very moment, our ratio of debt to GDP is greater than it was after World War II. And it's almost unimaginable that it's going to get worse, that right now in Washington, D.C., uh, politicians led by the president are negotiating to raise debt levels uh, to levels that this country has never seen before. Uh, we also have the question of an eroding work ethic. The economy, yes, has turned around after COVID, and thank God for Moderna, Pfizer, uh, and uh, Johnson and Johnson and others who stepped in and unleashed, you know, genius work in order to try to beat back COVID. And, and the U.S. economy has come roaring back uh, pretty much. That's not an unfair statement to say we've become we've come roaring back. But what hasn't roared back is the labor participation rate, the percentage of people who've decided, you know what, I think I'll just stay home. Um, that has not rebounded. And that worries me. And then finally, it's very difficult in a mature, diverse country to maintain a level of patriotism. Indeed, there are many people in this country, many civic leaders who downright denounce patriotism and think that patriotism is somehow equivalent to maladies uh, and infirmities like uh, racism and sexism and so on. I don't think that's the case. I think if a country is going to cohere, it needs to have knowledge of its own history and maybe even, and I'll say it, maybe even a little affection for itself. So I wish I could tell you those factors have all turned around and now everything's going great. Um, but I can't say that. Yeah. And I mean, I think a, a lot of Americans um, just looking around them, looking at the situation in their communities, um, especially over the last year and a half, um, they would agree with a lot of the issues, um, especially with the, the political polarization. And so um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, um, it's very interesting, um, actually, um, how rich nations decline, because historically there's there, there's traditionally some patterns. So you mentioned the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburgs. Um, their falling apart had a lot to do with war um, and, you know, um, th those sorts of issues. Um, then there's other sorts of issues such as hyperinflation that caused large rich states to fall apart very quickly. Um, the, the sort of gradual decline um, is usually either replaced by some sort of, you know, a revolution in some sense, if there is a drastic economic uh, downturn. How do you see um, if this sort of downturn does come to the United States and it does start to fall apart? Uh, a lot of people on, on the right have talked about, you know, some states um, seceding, 
you know, or red states and blue states splitting apart and forming their own um, independent nations. How do you see um, downturn if it does come to the United States and we do get to the point where, you know, we cease to exist? How do you think this sort of downturn will look for us? I do think that the um, the chance of secession, while not high, uh, is apparent. It is a possibility. And this is almost mind-boggling because most of us who grew up in this country read about the Civil War, of course, and learned about Abraham Lincoln at the end of slavery. And it was almost a given that Abraham Lincoln was right to fight the South in the Civil War, not to let the South secede. But I kind of wonder now if that were put up for a vote uh, in, you know, if we did a sort of, you know, game reenactment, I think a larger percentage of people would say, well, let them go. A lot, a lot of percent, a lot of people in the North would say, well, if that's what they believe in, if that's what they want to do, we think they're wrong. We think they're evil. But why should we spill the blood of our children in order to keep them in a union they don't want to be part of? And so I can, in fact, imagine that California and Texas diverge so much that they have sent one of them secedes uh, and the other could stay. Now, again, I, I'm not some crackpot who's telling you that, who sees black helicopters flying above and telling you to sell all your stocks and hide in the basement and buy 12 years worth of canned tuna. That's not the way I think. But if you ask me, is there a viable, statistically significant probability? I'd say yes. And I'd say yes for the first time in my lifetime. Yeah, um, and that, I think one of the other issues, uh, you, I mean, one of the examples you gave in the talk you did for the Young, Young America's Foundation is how um, you you recalled elections back from the 70s and the 80s when everyone would talk about, you know, if this candidate wins, I'm moving to Canada or I'm moving to Australia. And that was something that people never really did. Um, they never, it was always just something they said. Um, but now more and more um, people, not if not leaving the country, a lot of people are leaving their respective states and moving to places that they feel are more aligned with their, with their values. So there's a mass um, exodus of people moving out of California, going to places like Texas or um, Florida. Um, so I think this is this is one of the great things about the federalist system is that people have the ability to move to places that they feel are more aligned with their values. And this forces states to become competitive with one another to try and retain their their um, inhabitants to retain their taxpayers. So do you think this this competition between the states or, or our federalist system inherently um, works in, in our own interest to preserve the union more so than to, to spread it um, to, more so than works against it? I, I think you make a very good point. And I would like to think uh, that was the case, that states compete in order to retain citizens. But when I look at California and I look at Illinois uh, and Connecticut and some other uh, hard scrabble states in the North that are stuck with very high taxes, pension plans, state pension plans of employees that are absolutely unsustainable. I'm actually not seeing hard choices being made in order to become more attractive. It just seems as if 
the state legislators state legislatures have become so polarized and in the state of california the republican party is hardly present um and so you know i i wish i could say that california is turning around in illinois uh and connecticut and new jersey but it that doesn't seem to be the case the the feeling seems to be good riddance um you know we'll get by with our high taxes and bloated pension plans regardless now so far that's been okay so far we've not seen uh widespread bankruptcies of municipalities uh and states um and bailouts um requested from the federal government um I, it may just be a matter of time. Yeah. Um, so moving on, I wanted to get your take on some of the economic policy that we're seeing um, under the new administration. So uh, you talked um, just um, a few minutes back about the um, issue with the labor force participation. And certainly we are seeing um, resignations, mass um, worker resignations all across the country um, at unprecedented levels. So I, I was speaking to uh, quite a few other economists, both um, in the United States and across Canada. And what uh, a consensus seems to be is that a, a large reason behind this is the way that both the Biden as well as the Trump administration handled their their stimulatory policy towards the end of um, to, towards the start of the pandemic. So what countries in Europe and Australia and New Zealand, what they did was um, instead of signing stimulus checks directly to the people, what they did is they they gave it to the employers who passed it on to their employees in the form of a wage subsidy so that people didn't lose their jobs in the pandemic. Um, so essentially what that did was that retained the connection between employee and employer. Um, what politicians wanted to do, especially in, in an election cycle, they wanted people to get the checks coming directly from them. Um, so they, they signed it directly to the people. So it didn't matter if they kept their job or um, they, they resigned and they decided to stay home. The, the money from the government was still going to keep coming to them. So, I mean, you were obviously someone in the White House um, handling the economic policy. So I wanted to get your take on the overall um, fiscal policy during this pandemic and how you think it was handled under both administrations. Well, first of all, I, I think that the COVID disaster certainly warranted big stimulus uh, from the federal government. And I had no problem with, in fact, I supported uh, the stimulus that took place in the spring of 2020 uh, that was uh, performed by part, in a bipartisan fashion by the Trump administration and a Democratic uh, uh, Congress, uh, as well as supported by the Federal Reserve Board. Because, you know, uh, Adi, a lot of people talk about the COVID recession. I don't use the term recession for what we went through. I call it the great cessation. And there's a difference. A recession is when uh, the economy turns down and essentially you are left with excess unsold goods, cars that can't be sold on lots of dealers, uh, homes that cannot be sold, boxes of refrigerators and computers that nobody wants. And often this takes place because there's been too much stimulus and then the Federal Reserve Board or the central bank tries to slow things down, raises interest rates, demand slows, and you've got too much inventory. And you cannot regain economic footing until all of those excess goods are finally sold. A cessation is different. A cessation, basically, we stopped shopping. Basically, we stopped going out. Now, of course, many of us then ordered things to be delivered to the home, yes. But in general, there was a cessation of the economy. 
Um, so the the original stimulus to keep people liquid, to give them the wherewithal to continue to feed themselves uh, and pay uh, emergent expenses, that was entirely legitimate. But what happened at the very end of the Trump administration and the beginning of the Biden administration was this reckless writing and sending of checks that did not recognize that the economy, in fact, was coming back. In the summer of 2020, the U.S. economy actually regained half of the jobs that had been lost. Now, back in the so-called Great Recession of 2008-2009, it took years to regain half of the lost jobs. And then at the end of 2020, there was a kind of bidding war between Democrats and Republicans, between the Trump White House and Democrats in Congress. You know, we'll give each family, uh, each individual a thousand. No, we'll give twelve hundred, fifteen. I'll see you twelve hundred and raise you six hundred. And it was reckless and irresponsible. And it has continued. And at the same time, the Federal Reserve Board has overstayed its welcome when it comes to stimulus. Um, so it's a combination of those two factors that have helped create now uh, the largest uh, or the the presence of inflation, the likes of which most of us haven't seen since the early 1980s. In terms of people staying at home and not working, um, the excess stimulus, uh, it went on for too long. And I had written a piece a number of years ago on the front page of the, of the Washington Post, arguing that unemployment payments, unemployment compensation should be turned into signing bonuses. In other words, if someone is collecting unemployment, um, they typically people wait until the unemployment runs out, and that's when they go back and get a job. We should be inducing people back into the workforce. And the way you do that, and this is kind of a generous policy, is you basically pay them a big lump sum signing bonus if they come back earlier, if they come back before their unemployment compensation runs out. That way, you support people in their deepest need, but you also induce them to return. Because in the long term, nothing is more destructive for the psychological spirit of an individual, of a family, or of a country if people are simply sitting at home and no longer feel the need to go out and work. That's what gives us self-worth. Yeah, and so there's there's certainly uh, an argument to be had there around how we structure um, welfare and unemployment, because um, as, as I'm sure you know, the United States, even on a per capita basis, spends probably some of the highest amounts of um, in the world on, on welfare and unemployment and, and entitlement spending. So um, this this sort of um, th this this leads to the the argument that well the reason that these issues continue to persist is not because we're not spending enough money um, the the issue can't be solved simply by throwing more money at the problem um, you know common sense would dictate that there's poverty so you give people money and they're, they're no longer poor but I think that's what's really fundamental in addressing these issues is, is the sorts of policies that you talk about well and and I'm very worried about. The we can talk about cancel culture or skip the whole discussion about cancel culture, but I feel from a policy point of view, moderate Democrats have essentially been canceled. Bill Clinton, working with a Republican Congress in 1996, passed a very effective welfare reform. 
Now, in fact, at the time, some of his advisors resigned in protest. Uh, but the facts following up on that welfare reform is that it created um, an incentive to get jobs. More poor people got jobs. And in fact, there was a recent study I saw the other day, the level of food insecurity, the number of families that felt they might not have enough food to feed themselves and their children, that declined sharply as a result of welfare reform. And yet now, the Bill Clinton welfare reform is seen as this you know, totem of evil. And in fact, uh, Joe Biden and Barack Obama essentially have been trying to chip it away, chip at it ever since and break down any kind of requirement of work. That undoes one of the smartest bipartisan policies uh, in the last 25 years. And so connected to this this welfare issue, then I, I want to go um, into a, a, another topic that's been widely debated um, and, and it's deeply connected to, to welfare in, in a way um, is the national debt. So the last few months have seen heated debate about the $30 trillion national debt. The United States now has a national debt to GDP ratio of well above 100%, um, a figure which has increased exponentially over the past few decades. So um, I wanted to get your take on whether Americans have any reason to panic and where you see this national debt issue headed if we keep borrowing and spending like we have been and don't stop. Eventually, we're going to have to pay the debt back. Now, when interest rates are as low as they are, it makes sense to borrow, but one should have some idea of whether the debt can ever be paid back. That's why I have argued in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere uh, that the US government issue bonds, 100-year bonds, to lock in these remarkably low, ra- uh, low interest rates for several generations. Instead, and Adi, this is what's scary to me, the average duration of US debt, that is, how frequently we basically have to turn it over and refinance it is about five to six years. Now, I know very few economists and non-economists who think in five or six years, interest rates will be as low as they are today. And if not five or six years, what about 10 years or 12 years? We should be issuing long-term debt and locking in these low interest rates. Um, Someday we'll solve the debt crisis. The only question is whether we wait for a terrible financial crisis, in which case the flames will force us to take drastic action. It would be far better to take action beforehand. Yeah, and I think looking overseas, um, a a country that had an issue with um, the national debt very recently was Greece. So what happened was they they were in a very similar situation where their national debt to GDP ratio was similar to what ours is now, um, well over 100%. And essentially, um, just what happened was their credit rating declined. It became Greece, um, because they had such high levels of debt, um, investors realized that there was a very low chance that they were going to be able to pay all of it back. The the probability of default went up so high that that became more and more of a risky investment. Um, And so interest rates to compensate for that went higher and higher and higher. And eventually, it spiraled out of control and interest rates um, just soared to like 400% and the whole economy collapsed. so Greece, luckily, was a small economy, and and I mean the EU came in and bailed it out, and eventually it got back on its feet. 
I don't know if a similar situation would be possible in the United States, or if that's if, if that situation actually manifested itself, whether it would just be the end of the United States as we know it. Well, you don't even have to look at a country as uh, relatively um, poor is not the right word, uh, a modest sized country like Greece, or one that's 3000 miles away from uh, from Washington, D.C., you can look at Canada and Sweden, each of the, those two countries, which are a little bit more similar to the U.S. in terms of the nature of the economy, faced terrible financial crises in the early 1990s. Sweden, and of course, it's so ironic because so many folks on the left like to raise up Sweden and Denmark as a paragon, as a model of what the U.S. should be doing. And most of these commentators have no idea that the early 1990s, it looked like Sweden and Canada were going bankrupt. Sweden had to raise overnight interest rates to 500 percent to prevent a run on the currency. Then what happened? Both of those countries took out not just a scalpel, but a steak knife and a machete and started cutting back government programs and pensions and government employment so that those economies could become more competitive. And they did become more competitive. One of the uh, big debates uh, over the last couple of years has been something called modern monetary theory or MMT, which is neither modern nor it's monetary, nor is it a coherent theory. I actually did a debate on Bloomberg television about a year ago about this. And the MMTers with their newfangled policy tell us that um, you don't ever have to worry about bankruptcy. You don't ever have to worry about printing too much money um, as long as there's not inflation. Well, when they were arguing about this, inflation didn't exist. Uh, and um, they said it never would exist. Well, now inflation is roaring. And I see very few of these MMTers coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, by the way, now we should be cutting back uh, government spending. Uh, if your listeners are interested, they can Google an article I wrote that was syndicated called Hamilton, as an Alexander Hamilton in the Broadway show, Hamilton Beats MMT. Yeah, um, we actually did a whole conversation on MMT with um, Dr. Brad Crowley from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, and so I think I've never, I'm yet to come across an economist in all of the ones that I've talked to. And I've discussed modern monetary theory with quite a few of them, and all of them seem to align with your perspective. It's a very, it seems to be becoming more and more of a, a fringe economic idea that that very um, that very few people, everyone is very reluctant to embrace. So. Um, I think that's a very interesting example with Canada and Sweden, how they all cut back on their social programs drastically, because despite the unprecedented levels of debt and unfunded liabilities, there seems to be nobody in Washington on either side of the aisle calling for a decrease in spending or anything even remotely resembling balancing the budget. So like anybody else, if we assume that politicians act in their best interest, which is to get reelected, it makes sense why nobody is willing to touch these social programs, um, because cutting them would make them unpopular with voters. So, Todd, is there any way that we can reconcile the political disadvantages of cutting spending and social programs with the given the economic necessity of doing so? Well, every once in a while, the American people wake up or are awakened to the reality of the economy and finance. And this happened in the 1990s. In fact, there was a idiosyncratic, somewhat 
annoying, nasal-voiced billionaire named Ross Perot, who challenged Bill Clinton and George Herbert Walker Bush and successfully persuaded the American people that the U.S. debt was getting out of hand. And his charisma and the money he spent advertising and the political campaign he ran forced Democrats and Republicans to sit down at the table. And as a result, in the mid to late 1990s, the U.S. economy had a balanced budget and began paying back debt. So it's happened before. And in that case, it was an outsider uh, who um, you know, was sort of an unexpected uh, intruder uh, to the political parties. And maybe it will be an outsider again. Maybe it will be an insider. But um, my children and you know, someday my grandchildren will have to <laughs> bear the burden and pay the price. And it would be a whole lot better if somebody bore some burden today or next year, as opposed to waiting for decades to come when it could be pressing down on them uh, with a force that they wouldn't be able to withstand. Okay. Um, well, finally, I wanted to ask you about your overall take on economic policy under this administration as someone who knows the ins and outs of the White House and any areas besides the ones that we've talked about that you think are especially of concern at the moment. I'm concerned about energy policy. You know, one of the great victories in innovation over the last 20 years was the innovation uh, in the energy sector that allowed, uh, under the Obama administration, uh, the U.S. to be an exporter, no longer an importer of oil, no longer beholden uh, to foreign interests. Um, and yet now we have this preposterous, paradoxical situation where President Biden is trying to discourage um, natural gas production in the U.S. and oil production in the U.S. on the grounds that it's bad for the environment. And he may be right, but here's the paradox and here's what's preposterous. At the same time, he's begging OPEC to pump more oil and other countries to produce more natural gas, including Russia, to offset the fact that the U.S. is now in a downturn when it comes to production. Well, we're one planet. You know, we're, we're fighting climate change around one Earth. So why is it better for our energy to be produced in Russia, in, in Arabia, uh, in China, Kazakhstan, and elsewhere, where they may have less concern about the environmental uh, impact than in the U.S. So we've stepped into this preposterous paradox, and it was not a stumble. It is a deliberate step towards incompetence, which at this very moment is injuring the American people in terms of their ability to put food on the table because it's contributed to inflation and, excuse the pun, siphons money uh, into their gas tank that might otherwise be used to help with childcare, to help with education, and to help uh, with the basics of life. So, I mean, that that's an area I'm concerned about. And I I wish I, I could tell you that some sense was coming to the White House soon on this issue. Well, um, those are all the questions that I have for you today, Todd. Once again, I want to say a massive thank you for being on the show. All right. Good to be with you and good luck with the podcast.
All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to the Economics Review. Um, as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.